Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church again this morning. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that without him, we'd have no hope. We know that when we were lost and dead in our sins, you made us alive. And it's because your Son died for our sins and rose from the dead three days later. We ask, Father, this morning that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct everything that we'll be fellowshipping together here with. And we ask also, Father, for you to take care of the needs of the saints, our members of this congregation, and Christians around the country and world. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If everyone could please stand. We're going to continue to do song service, but not with the... Um, with the, with the singers, due to the concerns about COVID. Um, so we're going to have a video that you can sing along to instead. We'll see how this goes. You may be seated. Well, it's definitely not the same as having singers up front, but for now, it's the best thing we should do for the COVID virus, for everybody, including myself. Um, first, all, I want to thank, I believe it's uh, Letha and Margie for um, the beautiful setup and uh, decorations that we have in the church now. Yeah. Um, you can, I don't know about you, but I can feel the love in every part of that that's been done, especially this year. So thank you very much, ladies. Today being the first Sunday of the month, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of service today. This month, we're featuring um, Basic Training Bible Ministries as the missionary organization. And they're led by Gene Cunningham and his wife, Nan. Um, I got a beautiful note from them um, comforting the congregation when uh, Steve and Marilyn passed on. Um, they are... Uh, been, they've been doing this for a long time. Their uh, mission includes evangelism. They also train pastors, workers in remote parts of the world. Gene, uh, in the past, has been instrumental in establishing Bible schools in Africa, India, and Papua New Guinea. And uh, Nan uh, holds classes for the pastor's wives, and she's also developed Bible schools for children in both India and Papua New Guinea. They also conduct missions training camps in North America and Australia, and they train others to do the same as what they do. And they also um, have been sponsoring conferences, especially this year when traveling has been so difficult. So please support them in any way that you can. Again, here's their website, by the way, back at the beginning, too far. Basictraining.org. It's pretty straightforward to remember. Basictraining.org. All right. Today's message comes, of course, from the letter of 1 Timothy. The title today is Having a Reputation for Good Works. Having a Reputation for Good Works. I'd like you to turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. We'll read this. Okay. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. 
having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. As they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman is a, who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Well, the passages last week and today are in verses 3 to 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. This whole section addresses the care of widows. And we can see by the, just the number of uh, verses that are dedicated to this one subject that it was a, a major issue in the early church. We know that the church then and now has a duty to respect widows, honor them, and in some cases to provide for their financial needs as well. That was the situation in the first century. That was the situation that Timothy faced when he was sent there at the church of Ephesus. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to instruct him and exhort him about how it is that he should be the leadership of that church. And, and, and this letter, of course, has gone down the centuries and, and has performed the same function. How do you be a leader in a church? That's the big picture of this question, of this uh, letter, rather. Here, of course, is a situation on the ground that had gotten out of hand when it comes to the widows. There were abuses. Now, the idea, of course, is that there would be certain widows that were deserving and needy, and they would be put on a list, and the church would take care of their financial needs. Unfortunately, that got abused. And as a result, the number of widows being supported grew rapidly beyond the financial capabilities of the church. Those resources were being drained and pretty quickly. Why? Because many women who were, quote, on the list should not have been receiving financial support from the church. This is one of those things where uh, it's, a, it's a duty and a challenge to leadership when you have conflicting goals. When on the one hand, you want to take care of everybody. On the other hand, you know you have limited resources. And you know furthermore that if you, if you use resources in one area, you won't have as many in the area that, where they truly need it. At the same time, you're concerned about the well-being, not just financially, but overall of these women, and also the reputation of the church in furthering the gospel. So there's a, there's a lot going on in this balancing act. And, and that's not just in the care of widows. There are similar issues like that that are found in various areas of the church uh, life. And um, here we get an insight, though, into how the Lord has guided Paul to be the instructor for Timothy in how to do this as best you can. So Timothy at this point, again, he's looking at a situation where there's too many widows, can't support them all, some of them shouldn't be on the list. 
How do you figure it out? Well, you need to be objective, first of all. You don't want to show favoritism. You need to be objective so at the end, even though some people might not like the decisions, at least they understand there were objective criteria. That's what Timothy needed. He needed objective criteria to decide who would and who would not be supported. Who would remain on the list and who would be removed from the list. And that's what Paul is laying out here in chapter 5 from verses 3 to 16. Last week, we tackled the first paragraph in in 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8. I'd like you to just look back. It's right before the passage we're on today. 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8. By the way, these two sections are connected. I broke them up for purposes of of, um, having a certain portion last week and this week that we could study. But they're really one passage. There are a lot of connections between the first paragraph and the second, as we'll see. Let's go back and read it from last week. 1 Timothy 5.3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren... They, the children or grandchildren, must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. This is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God only and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure on the other hand, is dead even while she lives. Paul says to Timothy, what? Prescribe these things as well. This is an additional set of principles, instructions, commands that I want you to also put before the people and and guide and direct them using. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Here we see the, the concern that Paul has. His ultimate concern is the mission of the gospel. He knows, and we've seen this before, that to the extent that there's reproach that is coming upon people, maybe it's, it's the issue is who the church is supporting that they shouldn't be. Maybe it's the behavior of widows that have all this free time on their hands. Whatever it might be, that's something that also Paul has to consider, and Timothy has to consider, that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household living with him, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers have a code of conduct and honor in taking care of their families. Now here, last week, we saw an expression that Paul introduced, that it's widows indeed, if you remember. It refers to the widows who are eligible to be taken care of by the church. Widows indeed. At that time, there were definitely widows who were destitute. They had no resources. They were completely alone. They lived alone. There was no household that they were a part of. They didn't have family members, children, or grandchildren to take care of them. So they needed support from the church. Those who did have family members, then that family should give them the care and concern that they need. But if they didn't, the church was to step in. So widows indeed, as we saw, this is a review have no means of support. They don't have any way of taking care of themselves financially, their basic needs. They don't have the resources to do it. Not only that, but they've been left alone. There's nobody else they can turn to. Their family and so forth. Their husband has has died. They don't have children or grandchildren. So the bottom line is that, guess what? The congregation has to step in, has a responsibility to provide for these widows who Paul calls widows indeed. 
Now, as we just saw uh, in verse 6, there's an exception. If the widow was living an ungodly lifestyle, if she was not relying on God, remember the widow indeed relied on God, fixed her hope on God, but not all the widows did that. The widow indeed was prayerful, but not all the widows were prayerful. As a matter of fact, some were self-indulgent and immoral. In that case, that woman would forfeit her eligibility. You might say, why would that be? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, you'd be given support to that lifestyle. That's not good for the woman. But secondly, it's not good for the reputation of the church. And that's a big issue because, you know, especially there at the beginning, the church was the focal point, the hub of activity for getting, spreading the gospel. And the way that people looked at, outsiders looked at the church, if there were disreputable things going on, that would be a total bad reflection. And they would say, I'm discounting the message because look at these people. They're not living right anyway. So, so that was what Paul was concerned about. And he said, you know what? Those, those widows who have lived an ungodly lifestyle, they forfeit their eligibility to be supported by the church. Sometimes you've got to take a hard stand. Widows who were not widows indeed are those who had children or grandchildren also. And again, those family members, grandchildren and children, the same principle holds today, by the way, have a duty to provide for their mother or grandmother if the grandmother or the mother doesn't have the financial resources themselves. If they're not living in another household, they're alone, they don't have the financial resources, children and grandchildren are responsible to take care of their mother and grandmother. That's a review from last week. That's where we pick things up today. I want you to now look at verses 9 and 10 as we get started with the new material today. 1 Timothy 5, 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. We're going to get into that. Let me say something about that right away. Okay? Unfortunately, people apply a legalistic approach to this. And they hold on to that 60 number as if it's, you know, um, it, it was, we're going to talk about this, but it was relevant to the, what was going on then. Don't necessarily take a legalistic view and say, aha, we have to use that number 60, it's the magic number. We'll see that, that's just not the case, but we'll see that in a little while. If she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, that's the flip side of what we saw earlier with the elders, right, and the deacons, that they were supposed to be a one-woman man. Well, this is the flip side of that, a one-man woman, okay? Having a reputation for good works. Notice that word reputation, because it wasn't only what they did, but it was what was observed by those outside. And if she has brought up children, by the way, these are categories to examine. There were widows who were widows indeed who didn't bring up children because they were childless. That happened. Heck, we know we've seen in the Bible many times where that has happened. Hannah, for example, in the Old Testament um, Sarah in the Old Testament, um, even, you know, so there's a lot of examples of women who didn't have children. Well, they certainly can't be examined for how they brought up their children if they don't have any. So these are not all requirements. Rather, they're areas where good works will show themselves and the opposite. All right, in any event, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress... And if she has devoted herself to every good work, the key there is devoted, put her heart and soul into it. Her, her, she's single-minded, she's desiring, she's loving of other people. 
And she may not be able to do everything in every area, but she has the right heart, the right attitude. So again, we see in verse 9 that phrase, put on the list. Okay? That's the same thing as being designated a widow indeed, whom the church supported. You see, that was what the list was all about. The list, and it doesn't have to be a formal list. It's just a recognition by the leaders that these women we have to take care of because they don't have family. They're destitute. Right? They're, um, they're, they're prayerful. They've had a reputation for good works. They're, quote, on the list. That means those are the ones we're going to take care of. All right. Now, we see here that Paul set a cutoff age here of 60 years old. Now, why would he have an age criterion? Well, here's why. The first thing, if you think about it, if you've got a, if you've got a list, there's too many people to handle, right? How do you, how do you pare it down? Well, the, most, the first thing you want to do is say, well, the, the more elderly are in greater need for, and more likely not to have children around than the less. But we'll also see that the youngers would have an opportunity, a greater opportunity to be married again. All right? but, but the fact is that setting this particular cutoff age back then would remove most of the excess burden on the church. And that's really, remember, what what Paul is helping Timothy through is to say, you know what, we can't possibly support everybody here as a widow, so now we have to make distinctions. We have to have choices here. And the first criterion has to do with age. And that would remove, back then, 60 years old. Now today, women and men lived to be 80, 90 years old. That wasn't true back then. We'll see this in a moment. So in, in that time... But the age of 60 would remove most of the burden. Why? Because there weren't that many women over 60 years old. But also that there wouldn't, I mean, it's hard to say this, but it's true. They wouldn't have lived that much longer. So the number of years that the church would have to support them would be lower than, let's say, a widow of 45. Who might live to be 65. Now would be 20 years that the church would be taking care of all her financial needs. Sometimes, you know, being a leader means to have, make these practical, difficult decisions that some may criticize and say, well, that's not loving. But it is because you're thinking of the well-being of everybody, especially the ones who are most needy. Okay. So now, why would this criterion of being over the age of 60 be such a, make such an impact on reducing the amount of money that the church would have to spend? Well, here's a fact. I looked this up yesterday. The median life expectancy, in other words, half live longer, half don't live as long. Back in the first century, the Roman Empire, the median life expectancy for a person who reached the age of five was 51 years. Now, why do I say reach the age of five? Because infant mortality was major. I mean, there were lots and lots of babies that never survived, okay? If we were to not consider that criteria and say everybody... The median life expectancy was around 35, if you put in the, all, the, all the infant mortality in there. But that's not a true comparison. So, we, so you look at everyone who reached the age of five, the median life expectancy where half the people would live that long was 51 years. Now I want you to think about 60 in terms of that fact. Okay? So now you start to see that, well, wait a minute, 60 goes beyond the life expectancy. Now, today, the life expectancy is not 60 in this, I mean, 51. It's a lot higher than that. All right, so try to get a sense, okay? Today, as a matter of fact, 
The life expectancy for a female in the United States is 80 years. 80 years. Now, if one were to add, you know, nine years to that and say that's the cutoff point, I hope you can see that that would also really limit the number of widows that the church would have to support. Again, the age of 60 in the first century would be the equivalent today of 85 or older. Okay. So I want, that's important because, like I said, it's not a magic number. It was, it was something that Paul arrived at as a, a practical, realistic number reflecting the number of widows who were at certain age groups and what the church could and couldn't support. Okay. So 60 or older in the first century would be the equivalent of 85 today. So there's a gray area here, too. We're going to see in a moment that um, he, Paul's going to say, listen, younger widows, the church isn't going to support you, but you can get married again and bear children. Now, even though the life expectancy is 85 today, um, or the, uh, the, the age of cutoff age would be 85, I have to tell you, but a 75-year-old woman is just not going to bear any children, right? So that there's this gray area, and it's bigger today than it was back then, of women who were beyond the childbearing age, but hadn't reached the cutoff, so to speak. And it was true then as well. So in other words, there's some discretion, there's some discernment that goes along with this. Okay? It's, never, it's never enough just to have these hard and fast rules. I mean, that's one of the beauties, by the way, of allowing the church to be the charitable organization rather than the government. Here I go political. But just as a concept, when the government, they have, they have to pass laws. They have to have certain lines. You know, you could be 59 and a half and get nothing and 60 and get everything, that kind of thing. Because that's the way the law works. But the church is supposed to act out of love. Yeah, we have these guidelines, but there are, top, there are situations where we just have to look at this as the big, the big picture. After all, remember all of this, Paul started out this chapter by saying, listen, the answer to a lot of the problems you guys are having with one another is thinking of yourselves as one family, governed by love. And that's, that, that supersedes everything else. I mean, even though, even though a congregation might not technically have to support a certain widow, but if there were people in the congregation that decided that that person was needy and may not, re, may not fit all the criteria, but we're going to help them anyway. That's certainly... What, what people in the congregation obviously can do and should do if you have the means to do so. So this is not a hard and fast thing. All right, so that's the age part of this. Furthermore, though, we see here that the woman who's a widow now had to have been faithful to her husband while he lived. That's the one man woman. Have to be faithful to her husband while he was alive. We talked about this when it came to the uh, elders and deacons. It was, it wasn't, the issue wasn't, oh, 30 years ago you got divorced. Remember that? The issue was, that the marriage you're in now, are you faithful to your wife? Or are you cheating on her? Okay? That's the one woman, man. And it's the same concept. The only, the only difference with the women back in that day and age was they didn't have any ability to divorce. That was all up to the man. So here was just an issue of you were married, were you faithful to your husband? Okay. Now think about this. This is another criterion. In other words, what, what Paul is saying is, he's like, listen, if you, if you want to know who's truly the one that the church should be supporting, most of all, it would be the one who fits all of these. All right? Over a certain age, 
having been faithful to her husband. And of course, there are other things that he lists here as well. In addition, she had to, this is the big, big category, but she had to have led a life devoted to good works. That's verse 10. Verse 10 is interesting. Let me just point this out. It begins talking about good works, having a reputation for good works. It ends with good works, devoting herself to every good work. So it's pretty clear that the, the major criteria here is having devoted herself to good works. Good works were a major part of this woman's life. Then from there, he defines certain areas. What does it mean? If I'm going to think about the woman and the position that she had back then in the family and in society, where would those areas be where good works should be showing up? That's the rest of this. That's when he says, brought up children, shown hospitality to strangers, washed the saints' feet, assisted those in distress. Those are different areas where one could examine to see whether, in fact, she does have a reputation for good works, that she has devoted herself, put her heart and soul into taking care of people. All right, let's, think, let's take a look at this. Again, she had to have had a life devoted to good works. What are the areas to examine? Well, the first one is being a good mother. That, when it says bring, brought up children, it means the right way. Being a good mother. And again, if a woman was childless, that couldn't have been an area to look for whether or not she had good works, right? But if but the woman did have, have children, if she neglected them, if she was abusive towards them, and so forth, well, that wouldn't have been a good mother, would it? All right. Now, you know, you start to think at this point, well, you know, how, is this really fruit inspection? Is this really kind of getting into these issues about the women that we really, you know, it's a judgmental thing? And the answer is no. I mean, after all, we had just got through seeing the elders and the deacons, and they were put through a series of tests and criteria. All right, why? Because they were taking on a, a role of leadership. Okay? In the same way, this is not judging the women, per se. It is just defining who it is that would be eligible. That said, as we're going to see, these are things that fall into the category of virtuous living for all Christians. All Christians should be living this sort of life. So in a way, this is really a proxy for saying, you know, has she lived out her calling to be a Christian woman? That was the basic criteria, reputation for good works. What else? Well, she had fulfilled her duty to be hospitable to strangers. In that day and age, and today, for a large extent, the sort of the the responsibility for hospitality fell on the ladies, on the woman of the household, all right? And the question was, when she had these opportunities, did she fulfill her duty or not? That's another area of, of, of the sea, whether that she had self-devoted to good works. By the way, in that time period, these, these strangers were very often saints, maybe even um, evangelists. And that's true today, too. You know, when evangelists comes... It's the, it's the duty of the church to be hospitable, to make sure that they have, a, they have a place to stay while they're there, that they're fed, and so forth. That's hospitality. And it had a big issue, a big part of that, was making sure people that came to visit them who were other believers or, or apostle or evangelist, prophet, those things, they were taken care of. So that meant that in some cases the woman should be opening up her home to traveling saints. Next, washing the saints' feet. Washing the saints' feet. A lot of people take this literally. And to an extent, that's okay. 
but not as a ritual. I mean, the church in many areas today makes this a ritual, meaning, oh, this is, this is, uh, this is Easter week, so we're going to have a ceremony where people get their feet washed. That's not it. <laughs> See, back in the day, they, were, they, walked, they didn't always have shoes. They walked barefoot around a lot, and the streets were filthy. They, I don't want to get into the gory details, but I will say this much. The, tra- the mode of transportation was horse and camel, and uh, there are lots of animals around. I, mean, I, I need to go any farther with what was lining the streets back then. So it was really important, right? So if somebody's coming into your home, right, it's really important that they have clean feet. Now, they've been traveling. They didn't have the ability to wash their own feet. So guess what? The household had to take care of it. Again, the woman or a servant if they were there. That was a customary thing. It was a show of respect. It was a service. But here, washing the saints' feet goes beyond just that particular thing. It's shorthand for all kinds of humble service to fellow Christians. That's really what it said. Did this woman have your reputation for humbly serving other Christians? That's what washing the saints' feet really means. Did they honor people in that way? You know, a lot of people, um, they may help somebody, but they'll take an attitude of, you know, superiority or sort of almost, uh, you know, indifference. Or, and that's missing the whole point, you know. Are you honoring people? Are you building people up when you're serving them? This is so important, by the way, for those in distress and destitute, for the homeless and the, uh, and the weak and the infirm and the stranger and the persecuted people, all right? They both, they, more than anybody else, they need to be built up. And if that's lacking, then you can do a lot of things. Like Paul said, I can give my body to be burned. But if I don't have love, it doesn't matter at all. Okay, so love is, 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 is here in every one of these situations, or should be. All right? That should be the heartbeat. Giving aid to those in distress. She gave aid to those in distress. This meant any kind of people in desperate circumstances, you know, Perhaps it was a, a young, unwed woman who was pregnant. But perhaps, too, it was saints that were being persecuted. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of distress that was caused by persecution from the outside world. I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, to see some of this. Get a little insight into what it meant to be aiding those in distress. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12. You know, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews talked about visiting those who were in prison. That's an example of it. 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12. Now you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. This is Paul writing to Timothy. And he's saying, you've done a good job with all of this. you followed my teaching, my conduct. You've modeled yourself after me. My purpose to preach the gospel, my faith, my trust and hope in the Lord. Patience with other people, love with other people. Hanging in there when things were tough. But also what? Persecutions and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. You can read about what happened to Paul in these areas in the book of Acts and in 2 Corinthians, and you find out that these were heavy, heavy, difficult, painful persecutions. 
He endured them all, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. That's Paul. Paul is telling Timothy, you know what? I've been through a lot of persecution and suffering. Remember what happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. He was left for dead. Okay, He was beaten times without number. You, you can read all about that in 2 Corinthians if you care to. But then he says, of course, what persecutions I endure, but he doesn't leave it there. He's not whining. He says, out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. There's the hopeful part. All right. But then he says something that applies to everybody who is striving to live out the Christian life. What does he say in verse 12? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a statement for all the generations of the church. All who desire to live godly, to live, remember godly was was conduct and, and thinking that comports with God and who he is, that God approves of. Everybody who desires to live like that in Christ will be persecuted. Now the persecution, of course, comes in different forms. All right, it won't necessarily be people picking up stones to throw at you to kill you. But it could come in a different form. It could come in people shunning you. It could come in the form of uh, maybe losing out on opportunities in the workplace. Um, a lot of different ways. Maybe, you know, in other, if other countries of the world today, it does include physical persecution, being arrested, being put in prison, having their lives at risk and so forth. And we have to, of course, be prepared for something. We don't know what. I'm sure most of us who have, who have desired to live godly in Christ Jesus have gone through things like this. And the point is, is that when, when a saint is in distress because of persecution, well, then that's the time for the other saints to rush beside them and give them aid and support and help and encouragement. And the point here is that when a woman had an opportunity to do that, did she do it? Okay. Well, to sum all of this up then, being devoted to good works, which is how um, verse 10 ends, being devoted to every good work, it basically meant living a virtuous Christian life. There's nothing that's said here that isn't said elsewhere in terms of how we all should live as Christians. I want want you to see that by going to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Living according to Christian virtue. And, And Romans 12, 9 to 16 captures it. It's a great passage. We're saying, how then ought we to live? As believers in Christ, as being placed in Christ, as being, as being crucified with Christ, knowing we've died to sin, knowing that we're, we're, we have an inheritance, that we are sons and daughters of God himself. How should we live? Romans 12, 9 to 16 starts with love, but real love, not hypocritical, quote, love. A lot of people will do the right things, but they'll do it in a, in a spirit of hypocrisy. Such that they don't, they're not really doing it out of love. They're doing it for another motivation. Don't be like that. Let love, let your charity be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. If your life is characterized by the opposite, you've got to go to the Lord and help and get that straightened out. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And here we go. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's that devotion again. And again, the woman in her situation, in her opportunities, you know, Paul lays it out. We've just gone through it. But this is a major overarching principle. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
love one another as family members, right? As Christ has loved you. He goes on, give preference to one another in honor. Honor one another. Giving preference means to say, I, I want you to take the, the high, high point here. I want you to be the one featured. I'm going to step aside. I'm going to step back and I'm going to have you be the one that receives the honor. That's a part of humility. That's a part of humble service. Not relying on what position you may think you have or any of that stuff, right? But just giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Again, that's putting your heart and soul into things. Fervent in spirit. This, this has to do with, you know, um, making righteousness to be a big part of how you see things. That's why, again, in the leadership issue for Timothy, there were times when you had to look at things according to what's going what's to help the gospel, what's going to hurt it, okay? And be fervent in that way. Hold on to what you believe. Be strong in the things you have to be strong in. Be fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Remember, it's the Lord God that we ultimately serve. And have that attitude. You're my brother. You're my sister. When I serve you, I'm really serving the one who died for me. He's the one that asked me to love you as he's loved me. Ultimately, we're serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Perseverance. There's that perseverance in tribulation. Whether it's mine or yours or somebody else's, we're all hanging in there together when somebody's going through any kind of tribulation or distress. There it is, devoted to prayer. You see, the widows, who were widows indeed, were devoted to prayer and and entreaties. But we're all supposed to be devoted to prayer, aren't we? The women who were widows, if they were supported financially, would have more time to do that. They could be examples that people could look to. But we all have that calling. You know, we're told to pray always. Pray without ceasing. All right? We can't do that in terms of our time. We can't be praying without ceasing. And in that sense, although we can, the idea is that throughout the day, we live a prayerful life. When we come across things, we pray about them. But these women could be examples because they could actually have the time to literally devote themselves to prayer for large portions of their day. But we're all called to be that way. Contributing to the needs of the saints. This is a big one. Contributing to the needs of the saints. You see, that is ultimately the source of all, the, all that Paul and Timothy are trying to work out when it comes to the widows. We have saints that are in need. We're going to contribute. We're going to take care of those needs. Okay? The widows was a big issue in the first century. But look around. Right? We have, we have, there are needs in our congregation. All right, we are to contribute to meeting those needs, whatever those might be. It might be financial. It might not be. It might be other things. It might be practical things that people need. It might be encouragement that people need. It might be instruction. They're all different things that are needs. They're not just physical. Right? They're mental. They're spiritual and so forth. Okay? But our attitude, we should be devoted to wanting to help, contribute to the needs of the saints, and then We've seen this in connection with the widows just now, practicing hospitality. We're all called to do that. We're all called to be welcoming in little things and big things. Little things would just be, you know, a stranger comes in our midst and and you talk to them and you make them feel welcome. But then you step things up. There may be situations where you have to open up your home to somebody for a period of time. All right. Doesn't mean you have to do that for everybody. You should use discretion, obviously, 
It's talking primarily here about practicing it in connection with the church and its mission. Okay? But we should all strive to do that. Practice hospitality. We should definitely strive as one family to do it. We may not all have the ability to do the different things. Maybe you have a small home. Maybe you have health issues. All kinds of reasons why you wouldn't necessarily want to open up your home. But there's other parts of it. So if we act as one body, then we can take care of all the needs together. Together. Don't put this on one person's shoulders, your shoulders. Don't look around and judge other people according to how much they're doing, because it's an us thing. Are we, as a group, practicing hospitality? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And here's the last one that relates to what we've seen. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. That's that humble service. And it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter who the person is. It really shouldn't. Your friend, your enemy, we're supposed to, you know, bless those who persecute us anyway. No matter who it is, you know, they may be down in their luck. There may be people that the world would shun. Maybe that they don't have a job, maybe they're dirty, maybe they're in trouble with the law, whatever those things might be. But we should still associate with them. And if we can help them in any way, we should. We shouldn't stick our nose up at people and their problems, okay? Because as the expression is, there before the grace of God go I. And that ought to be our attitude toward people, especially people in the congregation. Okay, let's go back now to First Timothy. Chapter Five, verse 11. Paul's now going to deal with the younger widows. And he's going to make a basic statement. Look what he says right away in 1 Timothy 5.11. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. That is a clear, definite statement. You can't escape it. He's saying, don't do it. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. That might seem unloving. What, he, what is he saying? He's saying younger widows can't be put on the list. They can't be supported financially by the church. The church should not cover their financial needs. Now, again, that may seem harsh. Paul probably understood that because he then goes into uh, an explanation of why. Why is it that the younger widows should not be supported financially by the church? He goes on. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ... Okay, that's sexual desire. They want to get married. Thus incurring condemnation. Hmm. Because they have set aside their previous pledge. We're going to see what that's all about. All right. So in, in some way, they had, they had made a decision, a commitment. And now by, they turn away from that in order to, because they have sexual desires and they want to get married, they somehow turned away from the pledge they made. Verse 13, it goes on. Here's another reason why younger widows should not be financially supported by the church. He says, at the same time, they also learn to be idle. I love that expression because it means that it's something they have to be trained in. I, you know, we think of idle just not doing anything. This goes way beyond that. In other words, learn, how to, learn a lifestyle of idleness, how to pull it off. Right? As they go around, here we go, as they go around from house to house. See, when you've got a lot of time on your hands, 
not devoted to anything worthwhile, then what happens? You become a busybody. You go around, hey, what is it? Hey, I heard this about that one. Hey, you know, going around from, why? Because they don't have to work. (laughs) You know, they don't have a husband, right? They can just do what they want. Going around from house to house and not merely idle, but here we go. Gossips and busybodies. Don't, now, you know, everybody, don't we all love busybodies and gossips? No. The only thing we might love is when they have like a juicy morsel to tell us about somebody else. We might love that. But basically speaking, this is not a good look, right? If you have, if, if, and again, think of it too from the outside looking in. You have these women who are being totally financially supported and they're being enabled to do all of this destructive behavior. Why are they able to do it? Because the church is taking care of all their financial needs. That's not a good thing. We talk about enabling, right? We may have certain examples of that. Parents talk about enabling their children if they're living, you know, they're not working and they're just hanging around and you're enabling them. That's not a good thing. If you've ever had a, had a friend involved in substance abuse, you know there are times when continuing to support them and take care of their needs is the worst thing you can do because, again, it gives them all this free time and it gives them the signal that it's okay to keep doing what you're doing. That's the same thing here with the widows. You don't want to do that, all right? The younger ones. Not, <coughs> not really idle, but also gossips and busybodies. Talking about things not proper to mention. You know, anytime you have your mouth open for too long, you're going to start to say things that you really shouldn't say. And this, gets, this even gets into some of the heresies that are going around in this church at the time. Not our church, in Ephesus. Who knows? There could be heresies going around in our church. Not surprising. A good part of the New Testament epistles is devoted to fighting heresy in the church. So, you know, we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Therefore, what's the solution? It's really simple. I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. In other words, they've got to get busy. They've got to have something to do. They've got to have the financial support from the husband, and so forth. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. This was already going on. Where the women, have, they, were, they shouldn't be on the list, they're on the list, they're younger, they have all this free time, they're getting involved in all these things they shouldn't get involved in. They've totally turned away from the things of Christ, totally turned the opposite direction. Now, Paul says younger. What did he mean by younger, by the way? Did he mean younger than 60? Perhaps. Or beyond childbearing age? Perhaps. See, that, that, that's the question. Does it mean, this isn't word right, but does it mean that younger than 60 or still in childbearing? Right? Younger. We don't really know. And again, there's room for discernment here, of course. This is not all, you know, hard and fast. We do know one thing about the younger widows, because he says that they still had sexual desires. Now, when you think about this, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, we studied that a couple of years ago, was he was basically telling people that, you know what, it's better. It's better if you don't get married because you have full, you have give yourself devoted fully to the Lord. Okay? But if, but you talk about a widow now. Now, he said that's only true, of course, if you have the gift of celibacy, and most of you don't. So it's better to get married than to burn with lust. That's 1 Corinthians 7 in a nutshell. But here we say, okay, so he's talking about widows. Well, younger widows that still have sexual desires, you've got to remember, by definition, if you're a widow, you didn't have the gift of celibacy. It isn't rocket science. You got married. So you clearly didn't have the gift of celibacy. So you're there. Unfortunately, your husband died. You still have sexual desires. What should you do? All right? 
So that's, that's younger widows. Um, <coughs> but on the other hand, we saw that to be a widow indeed, we've already seen this, the one eligible to be supported meant that you hoped in God only to provide for your needs. What does that mean? Well, it means this. I guess I didn't have that. I'll tell you what it means. By, fina- by receiving financial support from the church, you're pledging to remain sing- single. You're saying that I am in the category of a woman who puts all my hope in God, not a husband. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to get my financial support from the church. Now, you've made that decision. You've identified yourself as a widow indeed who is not going to be married. If you then turn from that and get married, you've, in a sense, you have... Um, going back on your pledge. Again, why, why would this be important? Why would it be um, a positive thing for a woman to pledge to remain single? And I just referenced this, and so we're going to look at it right now. 1 Corinthians 7.34. 1 Corinthians There's a woman who definitely doesn't have too much time on her hands. We're going to talk about children in just a minute. (coughs) See, by pledging to remain single, you would have single-minded devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 34. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now here in context, it wasn't the church that was supporting these ladies. They were still in their father's household. But it's the same idea. You're getting supported, okay? You have this freedom. You can get married or you can devote yourself single-mindedly to the Lord. As far as how God sees things, those are the choices, okay? And of course, it didn't mean that widows should never get remarried. He, he says, of course, they, they, they can if they want to. Not to put a restraint, you can. But they couldn't be on the list. They couldn't have been those who have said, I'm a widow indeed, I need to be supported by the church, and then turn around and get remarried. And if they do get married, it goes without saying, I suppose, well, I guess it has to be said today that they should marry a believer. Okay. But there are other problems with giving a younger widow money to cover all of her needs. Very simply, too much free time on her hands. Too much free time on her hands. Look at verse, go back to 1 Timothy 5 now. Please look at verse 13. 1 Timothy 5, 13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies. Talking about things not proper to mention. I don't know why, but just popped in my head. You know that, that TV show back in the 70s, Bewitched? I remember that show. I probably wouldn't watch it today because it's weird, but, but there was a woman in the neighborhood and she also always like be peek, peeking through the window to try to see what was going on. And that, 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 that's a woman with too much time on her hands, right? Not just the women, anybody, okay? But here we're talking about women. Women with too much time in their hands are trouble, 
Right? They're, they're going to get involved in things and they're going to say things and all that stuff, which psh, is going to be damaging for the other people and for themselves, really. And if they're, if they're connected with the church, if the reason why they have all that free time is because the church is giving them all their finances, then guess who else comes under condemnation? The church who is allowing it. Okay, so I want you to see this. Too much free time. At the same time, they learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. Not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. They would cause trouble in the church, and they would tarnish the reputation of the church in the eyes of outsiders. This is not a good thing. This is not the kind of thing the church should be encouraging by giving the finances to support this behavior. All right. And we, we know that, that the, there were some widows in Ephesus already doing this, already behaving this way, and they were on the list. Okay, so this wasn't theoretical. This was going on. Paul said, Timothy, you've got to do something about this. And of course, this translation is really clear. I don't have to explain gossips and busybodies, I don't think, to anybody, right? We've all come across that. We've all been involved in that, in the, you know, in the cattiness that's involved with that and saying, guess what I heard? And, you know, I mean, um, I'll throw this out. You know, I'm always hammering on this and I'm guilty of it. But, but if women are supported by the church, right, and they're younger... Guess what they have free time to do today? Go on Facebook. Need I say more? In terms of gossips and busybodies. Okay. For the life of me, I don't understand why anybody would put anything out there as material for people to gossip about, but that's the generation we're in. God bless you. I think it's crazy, but so be it. Gossips and busybodies. Good translation. Okay. You know, I, th- I picture like a busy bee, right, flying around in the households of the different flowers, you know, and they come to one and they take the gossip that they got from another and they deposit it there and then they take some gossip from that flower and they move on and all day long. That's what they're doing. They're pollinating with garbage and, and, and lies and so forth. All right. Not only that, but their conversation would turn in a dark direction. Okay. They would flirt with heretical ideas. Like, as you get time on your hands, now remember, these women don't have any restraint put on them by a husband and so forth. They're, they've turned their back on the things of God, so they don't have the church's restraint. Okay, so being unrestrained like that, any of us, don't think more highly of yourself. If there's no restraint on you, you're going to be much more likely to get drawn into the things of Satan, if I could put it that way, the heresies, the lies, the, oh, what's the, what's the latest and greatest thing? Have you read the book that's on Oprah's list this month? And did you hear about this new book called The Shack? And it's, oh, it's cool. I've never seen anything like this before. And well, I'm picking on certain things, but you get the idea, right? You know, and, and we've already seen already in this letter that the solution for women is to be under the authority Okay, either of the church or of her husband. All right, now that's a reality. I know, I know, you know, people who are into women's liberation, or you know, even today where we have all this identity politics, and not even sure what a woman is anymore, whatever. That, but the fact is that women need that that that, that objective strength, if I put it that way, in a man. All right, to keep them guided. Right, the woman was quite deceived. Remember why? Because. Adam left her on her own, and then Satan comes on in. That's a very good, vivid picture of what can happen. All right. 
I'm not, believe me, men, we have our own problems, okay? I'm not, I'm not just saying this is just for the ladies, but here that's what he's dealing with, all right? All right, they were, they were no doubt being egged on by the false teachers, you know, no doubt about it. But let me just say this, it is a short step from idol to idolatry. Never forget that. I, being idle, you don't see it right away. It's one of those things. Pastor McLaughlin used to call the Mount Pleasant frog, if you know what that story is. But you put a frog in a, in a pot of water at room temperature. And then if, you, if it had been boiling, you never would have gone in there. But since it's at room temperature, and then a little bit of time, a little more heat, a little more heat, and then they're boiling anyway. That's the way it is, right? With idle, you have time on your hands, you don't even notice it. You're drifting away from the things of God, from the Word of God, from thinking about it, from taking care of others. You're all about yourself. All of a sudden, you go in this direction and you find out you've got idolatry going on in your heart. All right. I won't go there, but 2 Timothy 3, 6. He talks about the men who are entering into households themselves. And... Picking on the weak women. Actually, let's go there. We got, we got a couple of minutes here. 2 Timothy 3.6. Time to pick on the men. All right. 2 Timothy 3.6. For among them, these are the men who in the last times will be guilty of all giving in to their flesh in all kinds of areas. For among them are those who enter into households. This is men doing it now. It's no longer the ladies going around and gossiping. This is men, false teachers, entering into households, captivating weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. In other words, there's men always ready to take advantage of a woman who's vulnerable. Never forget that. Okay, ladies, there are men who are like that. Okay, they will guide you in the wrong way. Okay, be alert for that. Okay, so what's the remedy? These things don't sound good. They're not good. I, being idle, turning your back on a pledge you previously made to the Lord, being gossips and busybodies, things that are not proper to mention. A really simple solution. Timothy, tell the younger widows to get married. Man, I'll tell you what. If I were running for, for public office, I would last about 10 minutes, I think, by standing behind the things that the Lord says. Can you imagine today? Woman's, a young woman's in trouble. She's a widow. And, and they say, what do you think? I said, she should get married. You know, that would be, I'd be hate speech today, I think. You know, but, but it's true. Look, these things are true. Whether our society says they are or not, you are best off, ladies as well as men, on just taking what the word of God has to say at face value and say, it's totally different from how I'm thinking, how the world's thinking. But there's something here that I really need to listen to and pay attention to. Get married and bear children. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, 14 and 15 as we close today. 1 Timothy 5, 14. Here's the remedy. 1 Timothy 5, 14. They've been idle and gossips and busybodies. What do we do about it? Paul tells Timothy, I want the younger widows to get married. That's the solution. And not only that, bear children. Keep house and give the enemy no reason, occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. In other words, by getting married, you you kill two or more 
bees or birds with one stone. Her sexual desires would be met by her husband. Her material needs would be met by her husband. And not only that, but once she has children, she definitely won't be idle any longer. All right. So that's the answer. A lot of people don't want to hear it, but that's the answer. It's real. God created the man and the woman. He knows. He knows our nature, our fallen nature. He knows all those things that go on. Perfectly clear about it. We get clouded by different things in our culture and our lives. But we would do well to get back to the clarity of what God's word has to say. Listen, ladies, if you're a widow and you have all this free time, that's not good. What's the solution? Get married. Get married. Bear children if you can. I won't even go to the keep house part, but that's in there too. All right, notice he says uh, some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And just briefly, that's the opposite of relying on the Lord. It's the other extreme. You go from hope only in God to turning aside to following Satan. And don't kid yourself, that can happen to any of us. But it can happen really quick when somebody has a lot of idle time on their hands. Also when you're a woman who is easily deceived. I'll just say that. By getting married, the younger widow won't, have, won't be providing any opportunity for the enemy, whether it's human enemy, demonic, to speak ill of the church because of their behavior. Verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them. And their church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. There's the issue again. If, if, if the church is burdened with women who could be taken care of by their family, they won't be able to have the resources to assist the ones who really need them. That's the love principle here. This is really just a restatement of what Paul's already said a couple of times, which is that if you're a child or a grandchild of a widow, you should be taking care of them. It's pretty straightforward. A woman who has dependent widows must assist them. All right, let me just sum up. This will be it, and we'll move on to the next section next week. You've seen this already, but I just want to sum this up, put it all in one package. Widows with children, or gran- the idea is your category and who supports you. All right? Widows with children or grandchildren, needs met by family members. Right? That's one category of women. Younger widows have their needs met by marrying a husband. So wid- widows with children and grandchildren, they take care of you. Younger widows... Get married, and then your needs will be met by your husband. Notice so far, neither one of these has said, now the church will take care of you. Because that's the whole idea, is to just winnow it all down, have the, have the proper support in place, all right? And then whoever falls through those cracks is the widow indeed that we need to take care of. Now, the other one, the tough love. Widows who live a self-indulgent, ungodly lifestyle shouldn't be supported. Period. Widows who live a self-indulgent, ungodly lifestyle shouldn't be supported. They should, they should change that. Okay? All right, then finally, of course, the true need, the place where we want to end up, widows indeed. We've seen what that is all about. Left alone, a reputation for good works, and so forth. They're the ones that should have their needs met by the church. All right? So everybody's got to take on the responsibility. All right? Family members, husbands, but then, as, a, as, as sort of, I won't say a last resort, but then as a category of those who really don't have any other support, the church steps in. All right. So that's that. I hope that uh, clears everything up. 
Um, We all have challenges in that area, whether we're women or men, widows or not. That's fine. We're supposed to sometimes be challenged by God's word. We should should step up and say, you know what? I'm going to live things God's way in this area going forward. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much today for this passage that gives us insight into human nature, its leadership, into our responsibilities and duties. We would ask, Father, that now we would have these words in our heart and that we would pay attention to them, that they would form our decision-making and our behavior in these areas. We ask this in Christ's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I would now like the ushers to come forward and pass out the communion elements. I don't know what it is, but that moment when the, when the communion elements are being passed out by ushers, uh, it's always a precious time for me, and I think I understand more about why now. I, Pastor Rory Clark and I, we often talk on Saturdays, and this Saturday, we, yesterday we were talking about how so often in life we have all these plans and all the things that we want that are different from the way they are, and we sometimes miss the most important things. The most important things are you, all right? I cherish every one of you. And let's not, in the midst of whatever it is we're wrestling with or dealing with as a congregation, let's not miss that. Let's just not miss the precious gift. And so much, I appreciate so much the years that we've been able to be together, and I know we will be in the future. But I think we should just stop sometimes and just appreciate every one of ourselves. All right, pass that on. Well, we've been seeing in First Timothy 5 that there are duties for people to take care of, of, of widows, especially children, to take care of their widowed mother. And here we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, bringing into remembrance the death of the Lord. I think most of us are familiar with the main events surrounding the death of our Lord. His arrest in the garden, the illegal trials, the scourging, Pilate after finding him innocent, turning him over to be crucified anyway. Soldiers mocking him, dividing up his clothes. But there's one, one detail from that day that can easily be overlooked. I want to read now from John chapter 19, verses 25 to 30. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus knew that he was dying. He had suffered so much, lost blood in unimaginable pain, struggling mightily just to breathe. And yet, he found the courage and had the presence of mind to fulfill one last duty. His duty to his mother. His mother was by that time a widow. Joseph had died some years earlier. 
That meant that the duty to care for his mother fell to Jesus and his siblings. But none of his siblings were there. They hadn't believed in him as yet. So at that moment, he made sure that his mother would be well cared for. He turned to the disciple that he loved. That's the writer of this Gospel of John. The only male disciple that stayed with him at the cross. We've read about the ladies. Only one man. And he asked him to take his mother into his household. He provided, Jesus provided for his mother in the best possible way. Put, him in a, put her in a household of someone who loves Jesus, loves her, and has the ability to take care of her. But I want you to think about it. Think about maybe what we might have thought in that situation. He could have said, I am dying for the sins of the world. Isn't that enough? Can't my brothers and sisters take care of mom? Or even, I know I'm going to rise from the dead. I can make the provisions then. But he didn't. You want to know why? Because he considered what his mother was going through right then. She didn't realize that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. She was convinced that she was about to lose him forever. And make no mistake, her grief that day would have been compounded with the fear that she would have that her needs would no longer be met now that her son was dying. It couldn't wait for him to rise from the dead. He had to handle it now, and he handled it magnificently. There was no better choice than John, no better way to ensure her well-being than for her to join John's household. Jesus truly did love his own who were in the world and love them to the end. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we just know the riches in your word. We thank you for having the, giving us the ability to set aside this time together when we do bring into remembrance your son and his death. We would ask, Father, once again that the Holy Spirit would stimulate us to have a deeper and deeper and deeper gratitude for what Christ did at the cross. To understand that because we've died to sin through his death, that we have been raised to new life, and that we can live a new life through the power of the Spirit. And we would ask, Father, that that, that, that work would continue, that we would be giving the ability, understanding how weak we are, and turning to you as our strength. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay. Bible study this Thursday, December 10th, 6.30, studying the book of Isaiah on Skype. Um, 
Last week, I mentioned that uh, we have some decisions to make about this building, about where we're going to gather together. Presented a couple of options. One was, of course, going virtual only. The other one was trying to rent a place. Opened it up for whoever wanted to give us any feedback on that. Heard from several of you. Um, Both short-term and long-term, we're thinking about. And here's the consensus, okay? The consensus is that we should definitely continue to have a place to meet in person. And, of course, we'll also continue our Sunday web broadcast and Skype Bible study. In the short term, COVID, of course, the situation is a big unknown, and it makes it hard to plan. So we just don't know. But we will tell you this, that as long as we own this building, we will continue to use it wherever possible. The longer-term plan, as I mentioned to you last week, not that long-term either, is to sell the building and then find a new facility that can meet our needs. We welcome any additional thoughts or suggestions you have of how we might be able to find that facility and pay for it. Most of all, we ask for your prayers as we figure this out and, and ask the Lord to guide us to the place he wants us to be. All right. Just remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people you will meet, and they'll need to hear the good news. And the good news is is that while we were born in sin, we were dead in sins, God the Father, while we were his enemies, took his son Jesus Christ, God the Son, and had him become human and remaining God, the God-man born of a virgin. It was he who went to the cross. The God-man for us died for our sins. Whoever believes in him, in his death and his resurrection, because he was raised from the dead on the third day. Whoever believes, simply believes, hears good news and believes it, hears that there is a Savior, his name is Jesus Christ, he's the God-man, he died for your sins, he was buried to show that he was really physically dead, and he was raised from the dead on the third day by his Father to new life. You believe in him, you'll never perish, but have eternal life. It's the greatest message in the universe. And we have the privilege of being able to give that message to people who come in our lives. All right, let's close. Father, we thank you once again for gathering us together here and on the internet. We know you're going to take perfect care of us because you promised to and you always have. So we leave all of the decisions and any kind of (coughs) worries and frustrations with you. And we know that, uh, We can lay aside all of that stuff of the old man and have our minds renewed with your word and to put on the new man who is being conformed to the image of your son and to live by the power of the spirit, put no confidence in the flesh. And we also again pray this morning, Father, for all the saints who are in any distress or need. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the spirit. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. Boy, the weather's been good lately. Hope it continues. Because I'm from the north. I love the cold weather. It could be 40 or 50 now, and I'd be happy. But have a great day. Hi.